from Nehemiah, chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 23. Nehemiah, chapter 4. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, it's going to be on page 400 to 401. As we're going through the book of Nehemiah, really we see a lot of actions, a lot of oppositions. And this chapter really captures that sentiment very well. Let's stand together and read God's words together. Now, when St. Ballard heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stone out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their tongue on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half of its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when St. Ballad and Tobiah the Arabs and the Ammonites and Ashdodites heard the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breach would begin to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the place, the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember, the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From the day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. 
the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I say to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of trumpet rally to us there, God will fight for us. So we labor at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also say to the people at the time, let every man his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a God for us by night, and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the God who follow me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapons at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Gracious Father, we pray now that the word has been read for you to bless the preaching of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit going out from, from this pulpit to touch every heart here in this room. I pray that all of us will have our hearts turned back to you to give you the glory that you might give us your blessing. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, church, earlier this month, we started a sermon series working through the book of Nehemiah that we're calling Rebuilding the Ruins. And we've been following the story of how Jerusalem's walls and gates were being rebuilt during the era of Persian rule. Uh, the city had been previously destroyed by the Babylonians. Most of its inhabitants had been removed in exile to Babylon. Uh, Nehemiah was uh, an Israelite, uh, born in exile, raised uh, in uh, Babylon, which eventually was overtaken by the Persians. And he rose up in the ranks within the royal court. He made it to the top as the king's cupbearer, the most trusted servant. But even with this, this, this great job and all the perks that came with it, Nehemiah was heartbroken for the city of Jerusalem. And he felt compelled to go there and to help restore the city back to its former glory. It had been uh, almost 150 years since the exile. And, or actually since the first um, ex, uh, returnees from the exile. It's been 150 years since they've returned, and yet the city walls are still down, the gates are still destroyed, and so Nehemiah, we're told, was heartbroken. And he devised a plan to get the king of Persia to fund an expedition to rebuild Jerusalem's walls and gates, and that's what we saw earlier in chapters 1 and 2. Now, last week, we were in chapter 3, and that was more of a high-level summary of the rebuild, right? It, it was just recording for us who did what where, and it just kind of took us out of the narrative. Uh, it spoke really of the the, the wall just being already a completed project. But now in chapter four, we jump back into the narrative and we're actually in the middle of the rebuild. Now, it's worth noting as, uh, as, as we consider our chapter, it's worth noting the kind of sacrifice that Nehemiah really had to make in order to lead this expedition, to lead this rebuilding project. Because remember, as, as I just said, he was born in exile. He was raised in Persia. That means he was ethnically Jewish, but he was culturally Persian. So that means going to, in going to Jerusalem, Nehemiah wasn't returning home. He's never lived there before. His ancestors did, but, but he was born in Persia. Persia is his home. 
And so I, I try to put myself in, in his shoes, and I, I, I would think, you know, it's, it would be like me leaving the comfort and familiarity of Houston and moving all the way to Taiwan. Now, it's a place I've actually never been. It's a place I don't call home. Now, it, it's a place that's important to me, but only because it's important to my parents. It's where they grew up. It's their homeland. So I don't have the same kind of emotional attachment or emotional investment in Taiwan as they do, which is understandable. So think of Nehemiah making this long trek to Jerusalem, working so hard on this wall, putting up with so much opposition along the way, not because of a deep, personal, emotional investment in the city. It's not out of patriotism. It's not because he's homesick. Jerusalem is not his city. But it's God's. It's God's city. God chose to attach his name and glory and honor to this city, and that is the one reason why Nehemiah is committed to this task. He will endure hardships. He'll face oppositions. He won't back down. He'll, he'll put up a fight if needed. Because the project to rebuild the gates and walls of Jerusalem has no self-serving interest for him. It's all about God. It's about God and his glory. And that's critical. Understanding that is so important for us to understand Nehemiah's resilience. That's why under his leadership, the people don't back down, even in the face of all the mounting opposition that's recorded for us in this text. Now we saw earlier in chapter 2, Opposition arises, but it didn't really amount to much. Yet now it rears its ugly head again. And this is what chapter 4 is really about. It's about opposition that comes to God's people when they are doing God's work. When God's people are doing God's work, they will face opposition. And that's what we see here. The reality is, friends, if, if, if you personally are going to commit yourself to doing God's will... If you're going to commit yourself to walking in obedience to his word, you need to understand you will face opposition. Our Lord told us that. Jesus said to all of his disciples that in this world you will have tribulation. And I know many of you can already testify to that firsthand. You've been ridiculed. You've endured insults. You've been left out. You've been misunderstood. You've missed opportunities. You were denied advancements because why? You were trying to serve God. Because you were trying to be faithful to God. Now, I know you could just let all of that opposition demoralize you. You could let it deter you from doing God's work. Or, on the other hand, you could learn from Nehemiah how to best respond, how to best respond to opposition. How to press forward despite opposition. Don't let it weaken your resolve. Instead, think of opposition and resistance as the very means by which God is going to strengthen your resolve. I mean, for example, if you, if you go to the gym, let, let, let's say you go to the gym and, and all you do is just, you know, you're just stretching. You, just, you go there, you know, stretch for about an hour, and you go home. <laughs> And that's all you do. Every time you go to the gym, you're just, I mean, hey, yeah, you, you might be more limber after doing that, but you're not going to be stronger. You're not going to grow any muscles doing that. If you want to gain muscle, you want to gain strength, you need to press up against some resistance, you know, some weights, 
some bands, you know, whatever it is, something, something that pushes back. Because when you press through that, that's when you get stronger. So I want, I want to show you how Nehemiah and the people of God pressed through resistance. They pressed on despite the opposition they faced. And there are three lessons that we can learn from their example found here in this text. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you see an outline. I've listed out the three lessons. First, we're going to consider how to, we're going to consider the first lesson is to learn to pray imprecatory prayers. Second, learn to fight in the wake of the Lord. And third, learn to construct and contend all at the same time. So those are three lessons that we can glean from this text. First one found in verses 1 to 5, and it's this. Learn to pray imprecatory prayers. Now, I'm going to define that term in a minute in case you're not familiar with that. But first, let's consider the mounting opposition. Look with me again at verse 1. Now, when Senbalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Now, Sembalat was governor of Samaria, which at this time was one of the many provinces within the greater Persian Empire. Uh, and Nehemiah was his counterpart. Nehemiah was the governor of Judah, and that's the province immediately south of Samaria. So these are neighboring provinces, neighboring governors, and Sambalat is disturbed to hear of their progress in fortifying Jerusalem. He is greatly enraged by the news, and he responds with a little psychological warfare. He jeers at them with a litany of rhetorical, demoralizing questions. Listen again to verses 2 to 3. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burnt ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, will break down their stone wall. So Sanballat insults them by calling them feeble. And he questions their competency to rebuild this wall. Will they restore it themselves? Will they sacrifice? And Meaning, are they ever going to finish this thing? Are they going to finish the project? Which would typically conclude with a celebratory sacrifice to God. He's, he's mocking their ability to finish this thing. Will they finish up in a day, he says? I mean, he's, he's just mocking their optimism to think that this is even a feasible project. And he questions the charred rubble of the former wall, which, which they're reusing. They're reusing those, those burnt down, broken stones to rebuild this new wall. And, and, the, um, and, and, he's, and he's questioning whether these burnt stones are going to be adequate for a city wall. And Tobiah, uh, the governor of another neighboring province of Ammon, he joins in the jeering. He, he mocks the sturdiness of the wall. He suggests that it won't even be able to hold the weight of a little fox walking along it. Their insults, of course, demonstrate how these men are so unfamiliar with the God of Israel. You see, they, they think that the use of broken, burnt stones is shameful. They don't realize that that's how God rolls. That's God's preference. 
he chooses stones that have been broken and rejected. I mean, just consider his choice of Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone of his great plan of redemption. I mean, if that's who he chooses for his cornerstone, then clearly he has no problem choosing, choosing any of us for his plans. His preference actually is to use those of us who have been burnt, who feel broken, who have experienced rejection. Why? Because when God's all-surpassing power is displayed in jars of clay like us, he gets the glory. He gets the praise. That's why. See, these enemies of God, they have no idea who they're dealing with. Their insults fall flat because they think the feebleness of God's people is a liability when, in fact, our weakness is an asset in the hands of our mighty God. But even so, though that may be true, God's people may not be aware of that. And they could very well lose heart in the face of ridicule and resistance. In fact, this strategy had worked for the opponents earlier in Ezra chapter 4, verse 4. There was a similar encounter of opposition. And, And in that situation, the building project stopped. But this time around, well, this time around, the opponents encounter some strong spiritual leadership represented by Nehemiah himself. Nehemiah didn't fold. He didn't lose heart. And notice how he didn't respond to his enemies in kind. He he didn't engage in a battle of words and insults. He didn't bother with verbal jarring, issuing rebuttals, counterarguments. Notice with me his first response, which we've already seen is his instinctive reaction. What does he do? He prays. And notice With me how it is a very raw prayer. He is not holding back his emotions here. You can tell he's he's upset. He doesn't appreciate these insults. It gets to him like it would for any of us. I think many people have this rather skewed impression of what spiritual leadership looks like. That, That you have to be, you know, this kind of stoic, dispassioned figure who shows no emotions, that's what a spiritual leader looks like. You know, which makes sense why some of you feel like you can't do it, you, that you feel like you, you, you can't be a spiritual leader because you're just too emotional. But look at Nehemiah. I mean, he's upset. He's angry. He's feeling all this emotion, but, but notice what he's doing. Notice how he's taking all of that emotion and he's channeling it in a healthy direction. He brings it to God in prayer. Well, listen to verses four to five. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where, where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. This, my friends, is a classic example of an imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory prayers are emotional prayers founded, found in Scripture where someone who is praying is asking God to bring down his judgment upon evildoers. To avenge us for the wrong done to us by the enemy. Punish them justly. Curse them biblically. That's the ask 
within imprecatory prayers. Now, I know your first thought is to think, whoa, are we allowed to do that? Like, are we, are we supposed to be praying prayers like that? It feels wrong to ask God to plunder your enemies, to ask God not to cover their guilt, to not let their sins be blotted out and forgiven. It seems wrong. It seems so vengeful. But notice how there's no personal vendetta behind Nehemiah's prayer. It's not motivated by personal vengeance. Notice how he says to God that they have provoked you to anger. He's recognizing that that God's anger, God's wrath has been provoked. You provoke God by provoking his people. You mock God by mocking his people. Nehemiah is upset, not because his name or his honor is insulted. No, he's upset because of the Lord's name and the Lord's honor being disparaged and ridiculed. Friends, perhaps some of you need to learn to pray this kind of prayer. I encourage you to spend more time in the Psalms. Did you realize that a third of the Psalms, one third of them, within the Psalter are classified as lament psalms. These are psalms expressing deep emotions of pain and anger brought to the Lord in the form of prayer. And within that larger category of lament psalms, there are these imprecatory psalms, specifically asking for God's justice to be done upon the wicked, upon the enemy. Spend some time in the Psalms, and you're going to find inspired language to fit your emotions. They're going to help you to express your deep-seated feelings of indignation and frustration. They're going to give words for for your desire for justice to be done, and, and, and words for your repulsion whenever you see injustice being done. And by expressing all of that emotion in the form of prayer, well, what you're saying is that you're ultimately going to leave vengeance in the hands of the Lord. You will leave vindication to God to deal with. That's what you're communicating when you're praying in an imprecatory prayer. Scripture tells us to be angry, but do not sin. Imprecatory prayers help you do that very thing. Because as you're telling God why you're so upset, you're going to start to realize whether your anger truly is justified or not. Whether it's rooted in self-preservation, whether it's rooted in a self-serving cause, or maybe it's truly rooted in a passion to preserve God's honor, to hollow his name. It will become more clear to you as you are praying these kinds of prayers. So my, my, my point is that there should be a place for this within your prayer life. Learn the language of imprecatory prayers. It's how Old Testament saints prayed. But of course, as New Testament believers, we do have to be careful. We have to be careful that our prayers are not motivated by personal spite or revenge. Because remember, we are commanded by our Lord Jesus to love our enemies. Which means that we should also be praying, first and foremost, for their salvation. We should pray for repentance to be granted to our enemies before we start asking for judgment to fall upon them. There can be 
an appropriate context to pray for their punishment, but pray, first of all, for your enemies to trust in Christ as the one who took their punishment upon himself when he died on the cross. I mean, we know that's, that's exactly how God's justice was satisfied for us in our case. So may it be the same for our enemies. Learn to pray imprecatory prayers. I believe they're going to help you to find that delicate balance between a passion for God's name and a duty to love your enemies. Those are two responsibilities, two passions, two commitments we are to have. Honor God, honor his name, set apart his name, but also love your enemies. These prayers will help you do that. All right, so that's the first lesson of what to learn in our response to opposition during the course of doing God's work. Here's a second lesson found for us in verses 6 to 14. Learn to fight in the wake of the Lord. Learn to fight in the wake of the Lord. What I mean here is that God's people aren't called to go into battle on the Lord's behalf to fight for victory. No, we are to go into battle following the Lord's lead. To fight from victory. The victory that he achieved. That's what it means when we say to fight in the wake of the Lord. Following the wake that he leaves behind in his battles, in his victory. Follow him into the fight. Look back at verse 6. And we see God's people don't back down, but press through the resistance. And they rebuild that wall. Now, at, at this point, they're, they're only halfway through the rebuild. The, the entire stretch of wall has been connected, but it's, we're told it's only half of the final height. There, there's still more to go. But when their enemies hear the progress, they grow very angry. Listen to verse 7 to 8. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So notice how the opposition is growing it's, and, and the number of enemies are increasing. Jerusalem ends up being completely surrounded by opponents. Senbalat and the army of Samaria, as we said, is in the north. Tobiah and the Ammonites are in the east. The Arabs are in the south. And the Ashdodites, they're in the west. And now they've escalated beyond just verbal jabs to issuing physical threats of violence. The opposition is mounting. Now, as usual, Nehemiah leads everyone to respond with prayer. Listen to verse 9. And we pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So apparently they had a mind to pray and prepare. To trust in the Lord. And yet at the same time to take up a defensive posture with a 24-7 around the clock guard. This, my friends, is how men and women of faith deal with opposition. They don't react with one extreme or the other. You could just pray and not prepare. You could just let go and let God, you know, let, let Jesus take the wheel. Picturing yourself like in a fully autonomous vehicle. You're just like, I'm just going to sit back and I'm just going to passively just let things go. That's one extreme. Or you could just prepare, 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 but never pray. Your instinct is to rely on yourself or to turn to others, turn to experts. You don't trust God. 
you got a tight grip on the wheel because you've always got to be in control. That's the other extreme. But what we see here in the book of Nehemiah, time and time again, is that the people of God pray and prepare. They trust God and they take up responsibility. But notice how starting in verse 10, all, all this mounting opposition is starting to wear on them. I mean, it's, it's telling us the builders are beginning to grow faint of heart. Uh, look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come, to, come, and come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So sadly, we see here that they're starting to believe the lies of their enemies. They're starting to doubt themselves. In verse 11, the, the threats increase. And then in verse 12, their family members, the, the Jews who lived in nearby towns, are growing so worried for them. And they keep urging the builders ten times over to abandon the project, to come back home, return for your own safety. They're fearing an imminent attack. And all of this is wearing on them. They're starting to lose hope. And notice why. Notice why in verse 10. They're too focused on the what of their project that they've lost sight of the who and the why. They're fixated on the what. On the vast quantity of rubble in front of them. And they're looking around at the meager amount of workers. Their attention is on the what. What they need, of course, most urgently is to be reminded of the who and the why. Who is calling you to this project? And why are you doing it? That's what Nehemiah stresses in the following verses. In verse 13, he, he pauses the rebuild. He arms the builders. He strategically stations them in, in sections of the wall which are unobstructed un, and they're low enough so that the enemies from the outside can see them all rallied together in, in a raid for battle. And in verse 14, Nehemiah gives his you know, pregame locker room speech, right? This is his, uh, his brave heart for Frodo rally cry. Look at verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Right? I mean, you can just see him just rallying the troops. Remember the who. Remember the Lord, he says. The great and awesome God who fights for you. And remember the why. You don't fight for yourself. You're not doing this for self-preservation, for self-interest, for self-glory. You fight for others. For your loved ones. And for your Lord. You do this for his glory. That's why you're fighting. Later on in verse 18, we, we read that the men of Israel, they just keep on building the wall. But from this point, we are told that they are armed with swords strapped to their sides. And, and Nehemiah arranges for a trumpeter to follow him around, never leaving his side. Because if the enemy ever does attempt something, Nehemiah is going to rush to the point of attack. And then that trumpeter is going to be boop, boop, boop. And everyone's just going to you know, rally to wherever they hear the trumpet sound. Listen to verse 20. 
He says, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. That's the whole main point. God is going to fight for us. He's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies. He's already won the battle. Friends, it is a different experience fighting for victory to achieve victory versus fighting from victory, fighting in the wake of someone else's victory won on your behalf. The story of David and Goliath, I think, illustrates this point perfectly. Imagine if you were there. Imagine if you uh, were in the army of Israel. And before the battle, well, of course, you're, you're understandably nervous. You're, you're about to fight the Philistine army. And they have a giant on their side. So the odds don't look good. The outcome is uncertain. Having to fight for victory an uncertain victory is terrifying. But then you hear that someone has volunteered to be Israel's champion. Because in those days, battles could be decided by each side just sending one champion to fight on their behalf. And if your champion wins, then his victory is your victory. But if your champion loses, well, then his defeat is your defeat. That's how it works. So at first, you're relieved to hear someone has volunteered. Until, of course, you see your champion step onto the battlefield. A shepherd boy, without any armor on, armed only with a slingshot and five smooth stones. And the odds aren't looking any better. In fact, they, they look like they've gotten worse. But of course, when the dust clears, it's your champion standing victorious. And then suddenly, you, you hear a resounding shout of victory coming from your side. You hear trumpets blare. A battle cry is now issued. And you and all of your compatriots, you are rushing into the valley in pursuit of a retreating army. The victory is won. The enemy is defeated. But you'll still face some resistance. There's still going to be some opposition. You're still going to have to fight. But now, of course, you're fighting from victory. You're fighting now with confidence. You're fighting with freedom. There is a difference in fighting for an uncertain victory versus fighting from a decisive victory. It completely changes your attitude completely changes your motivation structure when you know that your champion has already won and that victory is yours. And so friends, my point is that in the course of your Christian life, you're going to face opposition. If you're committed to doing God's work, to doing his will, you're going to experience resistance and pushback. But you are called to fight, to fight the good fight of the faith. And the good news is that you are fighting in the wake of the Lord and of, in the wake of his ultimate victory on the cross. That's where Jesus functioned as your champion and he fought your greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And there he achieved a decisive victory that extends to you if you trust in him. If you believe Jesus, if you put your trust and hope in Jesus, his victory is your victory. 
So now you prepare yourself for opposition. You've got to be ready to defend the faith, be ready to defend the good work of ministry that you've been called to. You know, if someone tries to discredit it, to tear it down, don't just passively sit there. Be strong and courageous. But remember that you are fighting in the wake of the Lord Jesus and his victory on the cross, which means that's going to shape your attitude, that's going to shape your motivation as you are fighting the good fight of the faith. So we've considered two lessons for how to respond to opposition in the course of you doing God's work, doing his will. Here's the third lesson, and that's found for us in verses 15 to 23. Learn to construct and contend at the same time. Learn to construct and contend at the same time. That's, that's Nehemiah's strategy. That, that's what he adopts from this point on. In verse 15, it says that the enemies realized their plans were revealed, and now the builders are armed, and they're ready to repel any attack. And so they abandoned their plans, and the men of Israel returned to the walls, and they continue their work. But as we read on in verse 16, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, and bows, and coats of mail. So what Nehemiah does now is to organize them into two groups where they take shifts when it comes to building and defending. Half were constructing, half were contending. And I like how it says in verse 17 that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. In other words, in one hand, they held a sword. In the other hand, they held a trowel. That's a small handheld tool used by a stonemason to apply a mortar on the bricks. So a sword and a trowel. And inspired by this very passage in Nehemiah, Charles Spurgeon named his church's magazine The Sword and the Trowel. This famous 19th century London pastor viewed his church's ministry as bifurcated between these two primary tasks of constructing and contending. Building up the church and defending the faith. You see, one-directional churches, one-directional leaders are rarely healthy. We need to be multi-directional, laboring to build each other up in the faith, while also at the same time defending the faith, resisting false teachings. you got to do both. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Every single ministry, every single program that a church organizes always has to include both activities simultaneously. I mean, sometimes, sometimes the circumstances will call for constructing. Other times, in in other circumstances, you're going to need to contend for the faith. I mean, just think about the New Testament book of Jude. You know, very small book towards the end. It's really easy to read. You've never read Jude, you should read Jude, and you'll notice that he starts off by saying, you know, I wrote this, when I started to write this letter, my original intent to write to you was, was to construct. I wanted to build you up. But after hearing about the false teachers that have crept into your church, I realized I need to pivot, and I need to focus on contending. That's what he says in Jude 1, verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So in other words, sometimes it's appropriate just to encourage each other, 
to build each other up in the faith, enjoying our common salvation. Yeah, there are plenty of times when that's what we should be doing. But sometimes it's necessary to defend the faith, to expose false teachings, to equip the saints to detect bad theology and to respond with clear, winsome, biblical teaching. We need to contend. And that's why, you know, I look look forward, and I hope all of you are looking forward to the opportunity we have next month to host Houston Christian University's Apologetics Day Conference. That's going to be happening uh, on Saturday, March 23rd. And the theme of that conference is geared towards preparing us for Holy Week uh, and the celebration, of course, of Good Friday, Easter Sunday. And we're calling it Defending Easter. And we got a world-renowned Christian apologist coming. His name is William Lane Craig. If you've never heard of him, he's going to be coming to speak. An expert New Testament scholar, an expert on the resurrection. His name is Michael Lacona. He's also going to be a speaker. And they're going to be presenting with a bunch of other workshop speakers I think you should join us. You should come so that you could be equipped with a sword. Maybe you've never wielded a sword before in this metaphorical sense. Maybe you can get a sword at this conference. Or maybe you have one. You just need to sharpen it. It's important that Christians know what they believe. They know how to explain it and that they know how to defend it. So I ask you, which activity feels more comfortable to you? Which one feels more natural? Building others up in the faith or defending the faith? Constructing or contending? Which one is, is, do you gravitate towards more naturally? Figure that out. Figure out the answer. And then make it your goal to strengthen your other hand. To strengthen your hand in the other activity. Don't put it off. Don't let down your guard. We need to be capable in both in the face of opposition in this life. I mean, just consider how how vigilant Nehemiah and the builders were. They did not put down their guard. They remained vigilant from that point on. Look in verse 23. So neither I nor my brothers or my servants or the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They never took off their clothes. They never took off their armor. They slept in it. They bathed in it because they were always ready, whether they needed to build or defend, to construct or to contend. And likewise, you and I are called to be ready to preach the gospel and defend the gospel in season and out of season. At all times, church be ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text that you have given to us to remind us of the challenges, to remind us of the opposition and resistance that we will face in this life if we seek to follow you, we seek to do your will and to do your work. Help us to be realistic about that. And then, Lord, equip us to respond appropriately, ultimately trusting in you, the Lord of hosts, who fights our battles for us. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for us in your life, your death, your resurrection. We follow you. In your name we pray.